And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. A new episode of Wizards After Dark. I hope this new format is working for everybody. Normally, at this point, I'd be in my groove. I'd be doing the post-game shows, and I, I didn't do the post-game shows. My last episode, if you haven't listened, you can go check it out. I think it's still pertinent, even though the Wizards have played twice since I recorded it, and won twice since I recorded it, was uh, I had ben, St- ben Standig on the show, and we discussed New Year's resolutions for the Wizards, and shockingly, that episode came out or was recorded on New Year's Eve when the Wizards were 0-5, and and in 2021, the Wizards can't lose a game. They're 2-0 this year. So uh, on the podcast, I've got a buddy of mine who you may have heard of, Steve Jones. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you should follow him on Twitter. He puts out incredible basketball analysis. He's a former player development coach for the Nets. He was with the Grizzlies. Uh, Am I, Steve, am I forgetting anything? Uh, No, you nailed it. I'm an all-around great guy. You can add that, (laughs) but that's okay. That's true. All around, all around great guy as well. And, uh, and yeah, we're just, we're going to discuss, I know you've been watching some wizards. And so I was like, you know what, let's, let's have Steve on. Cause you always have an amazing perspective on things and, and they, they lost five and then they won two and they've got this really difficult stretch coming up where, you know, they have, they have Miami and they have Philly and they have Boston and it includes a back to back. And then they have Phoenix and they have this very, very difficult stretch coming up of of really good teams and if they win a couple of them i th- i think they're going to be okay like, i think they're going to be okay when i say okay i'm not saying ah they're going to vault to number four in the east i'm just saying i think they're going to be okay because all you got to be is top 10 these days and you're okay and i think in their eyes they're going to be okay if they do okay with those now if they get destroyed in those we're having a different conversation because now all of a sudden they're like two and nine to begin the year and that's a serious problem um I want to ask you about the Nets game because that that game was wild and to me was like what the Wizards were supposed to look like coming into the year. Ridiculously fast paced, good offense, explosive offense at times, scoring from all over the floor, no defense and just enough offense to beat out your not enough defense. Um, Do you find that Nets win encouraging or did you still see those same issues in there? Well, it's it's still the same issues, but it is an encouraging win. Um, they needed a moment like that just to maintain the belief. You know, you, you go through those losses and you get a blowout win. Now you go to Brooklyn, someone you're expected to possibly lose to by most people, and you perform at a high level. You know, you're able to score. You're able to gut it out. You're able to get a win. That helps you long term, uh, especially going into this tough stretch over the next five games. So I think – Overall, they have to be encouraged and, you know, it's a reminder that, hey, we can do this, you know, and you get buy in if you're a coach when you get those kind of wins. Um, You get buy in from players who trust each other when you get those kind of wins. So those are the games that 
you have to validate and you have to back up, but that's absolutely an encouraging win to get that on the road in a tight game. You know, it wasn't like they blew them out or it was a fluke or people were all out. They went ahead and won that game. And hopefully that could be a springboard for them over the next week or so. How do we feel about road wins this year? You know, normally we'd be like, oh, they went on the road and they beat Brooklyn, which, by the way, is not a particularly difficult. Beating Brooklyn on the road is more a difficult road game because you do it after a night out in New York than it is because oh. you got to deal with the Brooklyn crowd. Wow. Uh, you just took a head. You took a shot at the Barclays. You took a shot at the Brooklyn crowd the brigade yeah the brooklyn brigade exactly i i did you know what i didn't take a shot at the brooklyn brigade because those guys are actually maniacs so i i didn't take a shot at the brooklyn brigade but i did take a shot at the other group of thousands of people who are not part of the brooklyn brigade and the reason why is because they're not even at the arena when the game starts uh you mean the the oohs and ahs at every crossover from the opposing team i mean Exactly. Like I've been to Nets games where they're playing Miami and they just show up because they want to see Dwayne Wade. Like, and that's it. And it's it's 80 percent Heat fans. That'll happen with Wizards fans, too, but not to the degree that it happens with Nets with 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 Barclays crowds. Um, No, that's insane. And quick sidebar before I answer that question, I, I feel bad for Brooklyn. Because this probably would be the first time they have a real home court advantage because they have KD and Kyrie mm-hmm. and, you know, the stands are empty. So <laughs> they'd be oohing and on for their own players. <laughs> That's true. Um, for the first time. Yeah. Wow, you're right. It's really like because even I guess kind of at the beginning of the KD and Pierce years, there was a little mm-hmm. bit of a home court. But uh, that that went out real quick. No, and I loved the fans. When I was there, they were great, but it was clear, you know, when stars came in, the stars were going to get some of the attention. There were going to be some other jerseys in the crowd, and, you know, you had to hope you'd win, and the Nets fans would drown them out. Um but how do, how do so know, how do we evaluate road games this year? Like like is that a good road win? Do we care to say that now? It doesn't have the same pop. I mean, you just played in a different arena. Um but it still carries something, you know, you're not in your home gym, you're not in your own routine, you know, you're not doing the things you usually do. So to be able to go away from home and get a win still carries a little bit for me, you know, I'm old school in that manner. Um, That's just a team that usually you should probably lose to on the road. But again, like you said, the road isn't the same. You're playing in an empty gym, no matter what. All right. Let's let's get into the Thomas Bryant discussion, which I think is necessary because Thomas Bryant is 26 for 30 from the field over his last three games. Uh, that is 87 percent. I think 87 percent, 86.6 percent. He he has 72 percent effective field goal percentage, which is outrageous. Now, now, Brian has always been crazy, crazy efficient. And if you listen to this podcast regularly, you've heard me pounding the drum that Russell Westbrook is going to be good for Thomas Bryant because now there are two pick and roll options for him. And I've always thought of him as an excellent pick and roll center, especially now that he's able to pop to the three point line and and really hit those. One of the things that I think is really interesting about his evolution, by the way, is that when he first came to the Wizards a couple of years ago, Scott Brooks was really trying to simplify the game for him because he sensed a lot of hesitance in the way that he moved on the court offensively. 
And so Brooks was telling him, mm-hmm. whenever you set a ball screen or whenever you set a dribble handoff or anything like that, just roll to the hoop. No exceptions. Every single time, just roll. We think you're really good at rolling. You'll get the ball. Just roll every single time. No exception. And so that's what he did two years ago. He was just rolling every single time because Brooks wanted him just like take out the thinking and build the muscle memory. And then last year, really in the bubble, they started to say, okay, now let's add in some popping. Now you got to read this and learn when you have to pop to the three-point line. And now he's kind of got, he's not all the way there. He's He spaces to mid-range too much. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of his mid-range shots are, I, I can't remember a mid-range shot. I think he's taken 10 this year. I can't remember one he's taken where I thought, oh, that was a necessary shot. Um, <laughs> they should all be either threes or they shouldn't happen. But, I mean, that's, he his balance is, is a lot better and, I mean, I don't know if he's going to make shots at this rate. He's shooting 72% on twos. But he did lead the league two years ago, shooting 69% on twos. It's not that big of a difference. Um, is Thomas Bryant's offense good enough to offset? I mean, I think his defense is a little better than it used to be. You know, just I want to hear this. Where do you think of Thomas Bryant as a starting center right now? if he's going to score at this level of efficiency, or at least a level of efficiency that we know is insanely high? I would think he is solid, but without the defense, it takes him down a notch, if that makes sense. A notch a um, notch meaning as a starter or not as, as a starter? A, as a starter, he becomes mid-tier, middle of the pack. Can help you, but there's also a deficiency. You know, hypothetically, if you talk about a playoff series, if his defense doesn't solidify, that's someone you could either exploit or potentially play off the court. Um, So for him, he's got to make sure that he solidifies that. But I think overall, he's a decent starting center and he's showing a lot of potential. I think he could, if you took his skill set and what he does, it would apply to a lot of teams. He's a screener. He's a roller. He's going to finish strong. He's going to run hard and transition. Um, and, you know, if you ask many teams on the league, they'll take that. You know, you look at what Mason Plumley got paid, right? What does Mason Plumley do that Thomas Bryant doesn't? The one thing I will say, I mean, I can give you two answers. I think he's a better passer. And, I'll give you that. And I think, I think he's a more refined defender. Yeah, yeah. Like he's, I think you can play him. Yeah, I think he's I think he's just more refined. Like you can play him and you can play Mason Plumley in a couple different kinds of coverages and like you're okay. You're fine. You're you're okay, but you can't space Mace. No, no you can't. As much as I love Mace, you can't space him. So he's going to be a screener and a roller. Thomas Bryant is a screener and a roller and he's added that three-point shot which elevates him a little bit. So I think with his ability to hit those threes, with his ability to screen and roll and run hard in transition, he gives you a pop every night. Now the defense needs to catch up because he's not that anchor that you need at the five these days. Um, he gives the effort, but it's just not there right now. Yeah. I mean, what? what okay, so you worked in player development. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're working in player development for the Wizards. What specifically are you working with Bryant on defensively? Because ultimately, the the question here for the Wizards is if he's a middle-of-the-pack starting center, which, which for what it's worth, I think – I'm not saying you're wrong. When I, I think there are, there are people who disagree with you and think that the defense is just – you know, like you have to hit that threshold of defense to be a legit starting center 
or else you're kind of like, like, let's call it the Ennis Cantor line, where you have to be above the Ennis Cantor line. Ennis Cantor might actually, it might be a bad name because Ennis Cantor might just be well below the Ennis Cantor line. You got like, oh. somebody who's at the Ennis Cantor line to name it that. But let's call it the Ennis Cantor line where it's like Ennis Cantor is going to put up numbers. He's going to get boards. He's going to be ridiculous. I mean, we just saw him get like eight offensive rebounds in like 15 minutes against the Warriors the mm-hmm. other night. Um, he He's going to get offensive boards. He's going to put up points. He's tremendously skilled offensively. Like he can do everything offensively, but defensively, it's like you're going to play him off the floor. He's going to give up points. You are not going to have a good defense when he's out there for the most part. Um, and so he's he's not a starter anymore because of that. If you want to look at the, Thomas Bryant, there are people who consider him below the Ennis Canner line. If you want to get a hundred percent of people saying Thomas Bryant is above the Ennis Canner line, then what do you like? What specifics on defense? Are you working with him? What do you look at him that he's doing now and say, all right, with his skill set and with his physical abilities, he's going to be able to do this kind of stuff better? Uh, Awareness, communication, and footwork would be probably the top three things I would look to hammer for Thomas Bryant. Um, He's developed an ability to get in the right spot. You know, he'll be at the level of a screen when they ask him to, but his footwork wound up with a guard driving by him. Um, you know, he's a guy you can get on misdirection right now. Um, just cause if you move him around, he might not be in the right position. Um, you know, talking to other players, you know, there's, I think there was a game, I think it was against Chicago. I think I put a clip up where he was trying to help, but he, then he just left the ball or there was a switch and he just kind of went back to his man without communicating. And those are things that you need from your center. You need that center to communicate and be the back line and get guys organized so he can protect the rim. Um, but just getting a general awareness, being consistent in pick and roll defense, you know, it's it's not necessarily that he can't do it. It's just more that he's active and, you know, that activity could lead to fouls when he moves his footwork up to lunge towards the level. Um, he doesn't necessarily have the size to be consistently in the drop, so it's just kind of finding the right coverage for him and getting him ready to know when to be at the top, when to recover, and when to release. So here's my theory, and 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 you unintentionally gave me a fantastic lead-in. Why why can't he consistently be in a drop? Because they'll bring him up to the level of a screen a lot, but but his footwork is you might like his feet are kind of heavy, and mm-hmm. so which is weird because. I mean, I guess he's he's good with straight line speed. It's the lateral stuff where his feet look kind of heavy. Because when he's just like running the floor in a fast break, mm-hmm. he's he's very good at that. And part of that is just that like that dude plays so freaking hard, it's ridiculous. So he's just gonna play harder than the other guy when he's running down the floor. He cares more about getting to the to the rim, so he will get to the rim more often than whoever's guarding him. Uh, but I wonder, like. He does have a seven foot six wingspan, which which doesn't come through a lot of the time. And part of that's on him because he doesn't really show it that much. But like and I know a lot of it is lower body strength, too, and and the ability not to be pushed around and to, you know, go verticality on someone and have it actually matter because you don't just get like, you know, tossed out of the way like a feather. But if he's constantly coming up to the level of the screen and guys are, con- you know, ball handlers are constantly turning the corner on him when he's there, which seems to be a thing that happens. Uh, isn't a drop coverage less complicated for him also? Like, isn't it easier it, to execute? 
it's less complicated for him, but at the end of the day, you don't want a situation where he's just back in the paint and inviting guys to take pull-up jumpers, inviting guys to come to him, and now he's got to contest at the rim, potentially get in foul trouble. Um, you know, I think there was a play against Brooklyn where he was in a drop uh, against KD, and then he lunged forward, ended up getting a foul and having to sit down. So the drop coverage is essentially you've got to contain that guard coming off and you've got to protect at the rim. And I don't know if he can consistently do both of those things. Cause if he's in a drop and he gets beat, it's over. If he's in a drop and he gets finished on, it's over. Um, so I think they need that activity from him because he does play so hard. You know, I think part of, part of what he does is that effort and you need that energy. And that's probably why they asked him to be at the level because he's playing so hard anyways. Um, it's just getting to a point where he is reading where the guard is coming off. You know, there's too many times where uh, the biggest set of screen, he'll come on the other side and the guard gets picked and now he's got to go and try and scramble and recover. So, I, you know, you got to have awareness when you're in that drop. You got to be able to communicate. Right. The other the other side of it, too, is if you're going to play a drop, you need guards who are going to fight through screens mm-hmm. and are not just going to hit the screen and just say, oh, shucks. And mm-hmm. uh, the Wizards guards are not fighting through screens right now. Like, no, they <laughs> they are they are hitting those screens and deciding, all right, um, that's it for me on this one. But I'll see you guys next time we're down there. <laughs> that's funny. How how would. You, OK, what 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 would you say is the number one flaw of the Wizards defense? It's it's hard to pinpoint one thing. Um that that's they, that's the name of the book about the Wizards defense the last three years, <laughs> by the way. It's hard to pinpoint one thing. The tale of the well, Washington just, Wizards defense. It changes. You know, there are some possessions where they look really good and then the help isn't there, so they end up getting scored on. And there's some possessions where they're bad at the first level, where you know the guard gets picked. Now there's no one there to help them and, and they get beat. Um, it changes. You know, I think the biggest thing, probably the biggest indictment would be consistency to me. You know, there, there's a lack of communication at times where it seems like they're going to switch. All of a sudden, one guy switches, the other guy doesn't, and now they're trying to scramble out of it. You know, they put themselves in bad spots more um, more times than they should, and that makes it tough for a team that, you know, has to find a base. And they just don't have that base right now where you know A, B, and C is going to happen in each defensive possession. I wouldn't even say they're getting exploited on their coverage. It's, it's more their personnel. That makes it tough. I mean, that's there, there's a cliche that defense is all about effort, and I feel like it's something that we were that like it's be, every sport has its own propaganda, you know. And I feel like the ultimate piece of basketball propaganda is that defense is all about effort. And the reason it's propaganda is because every single coach that we've ever had when we were growing up, and and even if you keep playing the game as you get older, is telling you that. Because if they tell you defense is all about your natural skill set and you're short and fat and you have stubby arms, then you're done. You're finished. But defense is all about effort. So that's the one way that you can make your difference. And, And obviously when you're playing when you're 12 years old, Defense might be a lot about effort because you're just going to try to annoy people. And, you know, I had I had one buddy I went to high school with. I was the I consider myself all league when I when I was there, but I was the all league manager of my high school basketball team. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, you know, one of my best friends, 
few of my best friends were on the team and and one of my buddies was he 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 basically made Marcus Smart look like he doesn't flop. Uh oh wow. And I had really? I had one buddy whose entire theory was these are high school referees. So they can easily be tricked. So he would grab the jersey of the guy. He would always guard the other team's best player. And he would grab whenever he pen- somebody penetrated against them, he would grab the guy, the jersey of the guy he was guarding and fall backwards and pull the guy down with him and then scream, mimic a scream as if the guy had made contact with him. And he would get a charge call like 80% of the time. He would get like two charge calls a game. <laughs> and that is absurd elite level trolling. That is genius right there. It is the most ridiculous grifting ever. Now, that would never work with decent referees. <laughs> but no, uh, no, no. But when you're also you're in the fight. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But also like in high school, it's like even if someone does that to you, you try to get into a fight like your coach is going to chew you out. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's the perfect environment for it. But my point is. Okay, I'll buy that right there. Defense is about effort. Like he's he's getting tons of fouls called. I I I get that. Defense is about effort. Ultimately, in the NBA, you need personnel that's capable of playing defense. Um, and the Wizards they don't have a lot of defenders. So I will now. I'll ask you this: Where is Isak Bonga? Where did Bonga go? Bonga to the bench. Yeah, where did Bonga go? I I'm. I'm honestly, I'm surprised by this because here's the thing. So Troy Brown didn't play in the Brooklyn game. You know, Jerome Robinson passed him. And that, I thought the timing on that was interesting because the Wizards just declined Jerome Robinson's option and they picked up Troy Brown's option. So I, I, I find it, you know, obviously there is some lack of organizational synergy if the front office picks up an option on one guy, declines the option on the other guy. And then they, the coaching staff reverses that for who they're going to play. Clearly, and and look, a coaching staff in a front office doesn't have to agree on every single guy. Uh, but clearly, there's a there's a disagreement with those two guys. Um, I wasn't shocked by that because I've never gotten the sense that Scott Brooks has been all the way in on Troy Brown. And I think if you're a Wizards fan and have been following that team, I'm sure you you think the same thing. But. I have always thought that Scott Brooks was all the way in on Bonga. And I still think Brooks is in on Bonga. This is kind of so like before we actually started recording a thing that I wish we had recorded. And I, I wish I did cold opens here was just like, I I can't really get the sense of what's going on because I'm not physically there. You know, mm-hmm. like media doesn't get to yep. be on event level. Media doesn't get to be there. Media doesn't get to have stop and chat conversations anymore, which, by the way, is the way it should be. But it makes my job more difficult and it makes it more difficult for me to try to figure out exactly why someone like Bonga goes from starting to out of the rotation immediately when they need defense. They keep saying they need defense and he's their best defensive player. Um, I was surprised. I'm surprised by that. And I, I don't really have tons of theories as to why he's not playing right now. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, one theory I could have is he probably fit better with the starting lineup than with any other lineup. Yep. And with the starting lineup complete, it may have squeezed him out. That would be my first theory. Yeah, that was something that I talked about on the podcast like three or four weeks ago where when I was I was talking about I think I wrote this too when I was talking about people who could potentially start at the three and going through the candidates and it was Bonga and it was Denny and it was Troy Brown. And and to me, Bonga's best ability is his ability to guard the other team's best perimeter player and Mm -hmm. his contributions are muted if you bring him off the bench and have him go against bench players, because naturally, unless like, unless you're going up against a team that just has like, you know, is bringing Jordan Clarkson or Lou Williams off the bench or something like that, for the most part, you know, bench players are muted. Their their bench players aren't as good. There are less players who need actual stopping from your stoppers. Mm-hmm. So, yep. so yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely part of it. Or, or at least I should say, I would assume that's part of it. That being said, like, there's got to be some way to work him in, right? Like, there's got to be some way, some sort of lineup where it makes sense. Have you looked at the Bonga analytics? I have not. Oh. Please tell me about them. Oh, the Bonga analytics, my friend. There could be novels written about the Bonga analytics. Oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were, they were, you take out garbage time. For cleaning the glass, they were they were ten points per hundred possessions better on defense last year when he was on, and they went from unbelievably bad when he was off to actually kind of fine when he was on, and 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 those numbers have noise in them, and then you look at the numbers again this year, and it's crazy, like it, it's too early for on off. I wouldn't use solely these numbers to say oh look how much better the defense is. Going into the Brooklyn game, it was like a 28 point per 100 possession difference defensively when Bonga was on. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's not enough minutes for Bonga. He's played, I think, 71 minutes. But the numbers constantly trend that way. And the eye test makes sense. Um, I just feel like there was some kind of way where, like, I don't know if it means starting him and bringing Denny off the bench. And by the way, Denny looks really good. That's not me mm-hmm. saying bench Denny. No, That's it's too late. You're, you've already been slandered. Yeah. <laughs> Denny looks great. I think he's playing awesome for a rookie. Um, but he looks so good with the ball in his hands. You know, that game that Westbrook was out, he looks so comfortable running pick and rolls. Like, he could do that some more if you play him with the bench. You don't have to turn him into a spot-up shooter. You know who you can turn into a cutter and a spot-up shooter? Bonga. Uh, you can use him more with your starters, and maybe that's how you get him with your 18 minutes a game. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll you can see how the spacing is around around Westbrook. Uh, if, if that's your concern... I understand it. That's legitimate. I don't think any lineup is perfect, though. Um, so I don't know. I just I feel like there is some way to get bonga minutes. 
even if it's just playing him as your 10th man with the bench. Like, at the end, I would just play him as my 10th man with the bench. Um, I was surprised. I was surprised. No, I, I can understand that. But, you know, just to counter it, it's clear that they're going to give Denny every chance to get going with the starters. Mm-hmm. And Hachimura is going to get that shot, which is going to squeeze some people out. So you talked about the 10th man. It feels like there's three guys who could fill that role. And none of them have played their way in. Yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. I mean, Dro- Troy. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, from a coach's perspective, which one of those three can I trust the most? You know, we talked about Bonga. I would probably need him more at my starting lineup than off the bench. How does he help my bench lineup? How do I get him in a flow with those guys? You talk about Troy Brown Jr. He has the potential to to play that role, and he should. You know, I I thought he would based off what he did in the bubble. But with the pieces they added, he kind of fell back to a more complimentary role, and the consistency isn't consistency isn't there. And then you have Robinson, who does little things, consistent, um, not maybe as flashy, but is probably someone a coach can trust. So that's where he ends up sneaking in minutes, depending on the opponent. So it's going to be one of those things where one of those three has to emerge, or Scott Brooks has to pick one of them. Yeah, one thing I will say about Troy. It should be Troy Brown as that 10th guy. Like, oh, 1,000%. It should be. And he's had opportunity this year. Um, he just hasn't looked like the same guy when he can't have the ball in his hands an ample amount. And he's got to figure something out to where he can make a difference when he plays off the ball. It, it shouldn't be this much of a struggle. Um, he's actually a good cutter. Like There are things he can do off the ball. He shot 39% on catch-and-shoot threes last year. He shouldn't look this hapless when he doesn't get playmaking opportunities. Because ultimately, if he's really going to be... Like, people have made Evan Turner comparisons to Troy Brown before. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought those were... I saw those comparisons, but I thought they were kind of imperfect... Uh, because I thought Troy would turn into a more versatile kind of guy. I thought he would get the catch and shoot to kind of an acceptable level to where he'd be okay playing off the ball. And he's a heady cutter and I thought he'd be a good team defender. So I kind of thought he'd be able to survive not always being the number one. And maybe he will. He's 21 years old. This might just be Mm -hmm. progression isn't linear. You know, this might just be a downtime for him. And all of a sudden, Troy's going to figure it out and get going. That's totally possible. He's a smart guy. He's a hard worker. Uh, Completely within the realm of possibilities. And it could just be a slump, by the way. I mean, it's been two weeks. It could just be a slump. But he he looks uncomfortable. And when people do make the Evan Turner comparisons, this is why, like, when you have Evan Turner, you, you want him handling the ball. You want him playing in a very specific way. And that's when he plays his best basketball. And otherwise, he can he can look really uncomfortable. Uh, and and this is this is the Evan Turner. This is the the downside of the Evan Turner comp coming through, you know. No, I understand. That's a good point right there. And and I think he may also be squeezed by the Wizards versatility lineup wise you know when you when you play Burton's he's got to play the four now all of a sudden someone else slides to that three spot you know maybe it's Ish and Beal you know two point guards playing out there to where you know maybe coach looks for a certain look instead of throwing him out there because he knows what he's going to get all right Steve I'll let you choose your last debate uh 
what is it? Choose your last adventure. Is that what it's called? Yes. Choose your own adventure. Choose your own adventure. There we go. I'll let you choose your own adventure to wrap up. Uh, What, what wizards line, what wizard storyline intrigues you? What do I'll I'll let you pick your wizards discussion. What do you want to talk? Okay. You got anything? Uh, Do I have anything? Can they find the shooting lineups to get the most out of Russell Westbrook? Mm, I like it. That's a big one. Do you think Westbrook looks like himself? I think he looks very comfortable. And it doesn't look like he's uncomfortable with his role. He looks comfortable with what he's doing. He looks engaged. Um, He looks like he likes his teammates and is trying to get wins. And I think that might have more value than some of the on-court struggles to me because, you know, in Houston, he didn't necessarily look like himself at all times. He looks like an engaged Russell Westbrook, and that should pay off at some point in theory. Yeah. I mean, the shooting is going to be big. The shot selection is big. Almost a third of his field goal attempts have been long twos. That's not just mid-range. That's long twos. (laughs) which is a lot. And I think part of that is Russell being Russell. And, and, you know, I mentioned that to people, I mentioned that to people like in the league who I respect and who, you know, know so much more about basketball than me. And the response is constantly, yeah, well, you know, that's what you have to put up with, with Russell. And I'm like, no, it's not. Because normally you have to put up with like, like 15% of his shots being twos mm-hmm. or long twos, I should say mm-hmm. 17.9% of his shots have been long twos in his career. He's doubled that. So that's not Russell being Russell. That's, that's something where either Russell's that's Russell's shot selection actually changing very drastically. And then we can chisel down from there and try to figure out the reason. Is it the lack of shooters they play around him? Is it what they're telling him personally? Is it Russ not quite having the explosion either because he's aging or because he didn't play in training camp and got traded in the middle of training camp and all that stuff and he hasn't gotten his legs going yet uh, and because he doesn't have the explosion to blow by, he is pulling up? Is it the way he's being guarded? You know, it's not like defenses have always, you know, gotten in his face and stuff, but each year defenses guard him less and less. He used to be able to kind of have... Uh, the like the superstar effect where it was like, well, y- you can leave non-shooters, but you don't leave a superstar non-shooter. You know, mm-hmm. defenses always respect the superstar, and they don't they don't do that with him. You know, Chicago was just Chicago. I think took the most extreme strategy on him of any other team. Where when he was off the ball, it was just like. It was like, you know, the the famous Warriors, Tony Allen example that's always referenced. It was like a playoff series where they're just like, just don't guard him when he's off the ball. Just just basically play a zone with your one guy. Um, it was like mm-hmm. it was like the whatever the opposite of a box in one is. And so so it's um, it's it's really. I, I w- it, are there any other reasons you think it could be happening? And how how do if if he is engaged, do you think it's just the lineups? Like, do you think if you play enough lineups around him, he's getting to the hole more? They posted him up more in the in the fourth quarter against Brooklyn, and that was one way they were clearly trying to get him rim attempts. They basically inverted him. Um, is there anything you see that you think could could help in that aspect? Well, 
I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. And you mentioned the post-ups. I'll touch on it in a little bit. But I think, honestly, when I watch Russell Westbrook, it feels like he feels like he needs that mid-range game going to unlock some of the other stuff. It looks like he's maybe trying to make the defense pay for playing back. It looks like a shot he knows he can get to at any point in time. So he's going to take it um, and and try and prove the defense wrong and try and get them to come up a little bit more so maybe he can get that blow-by without having to always hit the turbo button. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the great mysteries is I've always thought as I watch Russell Westbrook, how good would he be if he could just make two or three more mid-range jump shots a game? You know, it's it's not a threat for defenses right now. It's more of a counter for Russell. So he's maybe trying to add a curveball, you know, to use a baseball analogy. Um, maybe the fastball is not as fast as it used to be, and he's trying to add that curveball so he can have a mix. Um, and then the defense is just giving it to him. So sometimes you just take the shot they give you, and it's the one of least resistance. But, you know, as a player, when you can get that pull-up going, now the defense comes up, it opens up a lot more for you. So I can understand why he's taking it. I can understand why people may be like, why does he keep taking those long twos? Um, it's a balance because the days where he hits them, it, it looks like it pays off. When he doesn't, it looks pretty bad. And, and that sometimes is the Russell Westbrook experience. And he's been hitting them this year. My my the reason I'm bringing it up is because I'm you know just assuming that he's going to hit him at his career rate because we're early enough mm-hmm. in the season that that's the career rate and if you're taking thirty percent of those shots at your career rate it's like you know Russ getting to the rim can be ferocious mm-hmm. uh, and that's the thing you'd love to see but we'll see you know I'm not I'm not writing off like oh he's incapable of getting to the rim yet I'm not doing that yet. Um, I'm I'm still waiting to see, like you said, the lineups they play around him will matter. God, I've mentioned Garrison Matthews' name so many times on this podcast. <laughs> that honestly, that's the big disappointment. You know, that was the most fun part about the Wizards last year is their ability to drive and pace and shoot threes, and it feels like the lineups qu- haven't quite been there. Like they're searching for them. And I think they're, you know, they're doing better than expected as far as scoring the ball. Just sometimes they can't defend. So it'll be exciting to see. Yeah, I'm just they've played so many guys who are ball handlers who they've tried Mm -hmm. to wedge into a spot up shooting role. Now, Mm -hmm. in some cases, talent has overtaken the the role. You know what I mean? Like with Denny. Denny is so talented and looks so comfortable out there that that's okay. You just, you play the talent in that scenario. With Rui, you play the talent in that scenario. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not like Rui shouldn't be playing on this team because he's not naturally the guy who's supposed to be in that role. And when you have Beal and when you have Westbrook, you're going to have two guys who handle a lot. That's just how it's going to work. You know, with Troy Brown, it looks like the role has kind of superseded the talent, at least so far. With Jerome Robinson, looks like the role has superseded the talent, which is why mm-hmm. I'm just waiting for them to be like, hey, there's a there are a couple guys sitting there on that bench that fit that role. Let's <laughs> let's try the spot up shooter in the spot up shooting role and see if that works better than trying the ball handler in the spot up shooting role. And see if that works. Whatever. We'll see it happen. It's a long season. <laughs> I'm just waiting. There's a lot of, a lot of games left. I'm waiting. Uh Steve, anything to plug before we wrap up? 
Ah, uh, got a podcast coming, The Dunker yeah. Spot with Nikias Duncan. So that should be out here, I think, next Monday. So check out that, or you can visit me on my Twitter page, at SteveJones20, and get all the threads and all the clips from the league. All right. And you'll learn something about basketball. The, I promise. The Duncan Spot, and where can people uh, subscribe? Uh, it should be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, within the upcoming days. Perfect. So look out for that. And, uh, and Steve is awesome. He does amazing analysis. Great guy. As you can tell, all around good guy. Um, and if you've listened to the podcast, you know that podcast is going to be awesome. So check that out. Subscribe to Wizards After Dark. Tell your friends about Wizards After Dark. If you listen regularly and you want to help out the podcast, you can go onto iTunes. You can give us a five-star rating. You can leave a nice review. That always helps me. And if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, if you like this and you want to subscribe to The Athletic because you're interested in maybe not just my work, but other people's work, uh, you can get a discounted rate if you go to theathletic.com slash wizardsafterdark. Again, that's theathletic.com slash wizards after dark. And it doesn't just get you a subscription for my work or for DC. That gets you everything. That gets you all your NBA coverage, MLB, NFL, WNBA, NHL, whatever else you follow, all of our beat writers. Uh, you're going to have everything, full access to the site. So check that out. Again, that's theathletic.com slash wizards after dark. I'll be back with another episode later this week. I'll talk to you guys then. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.